Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we take a trip back to the 1950s and examine the Race of Two Worlds, an event held in 1957 and 1958 in Italy that pitted the greatest American cars and drivers against the greatest the world had to offer on the fastest course that the world had ever seen. It's a story of the United States versus the world, and the United States came out on top twice. Now it's time for the rest of the story, Dorkomotive style. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by NitroActive.net. NitroActive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. Oh, this is a good one, guys. One that I know you're going to enjoy because, one, uh, it is a story about competition. It's a story of about maybe overcoming the odds. It's a story about bravery, about pushing racing technology forward, and about the recognition that sometimes you're just not good enough to compete with the best. So the Race of Two Worlds was held in 1957 and in 1958. And the basic premise was this. Take the best American drivers, the best American cars from the Indy 500, ship them over to Italy, compete at Monza on the speed ring against the best that, that Europe had to offer in terms of drivers and cars, and then let the chips fall where they may. Pay out a big giant cash prize, get a whole bunch of publicity for the racetrack, make a bunch of money with the spectators coming in, and basically create what was going to be the perceived kind of the biggest international racing extravaganza anybody had ever heard about. The race of two worlds is the culmination of a lot of things. And when we go back and we think about America versus Europe in racing, we really have to go back all the way to the early 1900s and the Vanderbilt Cup races right around like 1905, 1906 in there. Because those Vanderbilt Cup races, as kind of archaic and as basic as they were, were the first example of the American auto builders taking on the European comp- the companies. Um, you know, the, the French companies... The English companies, um, the German companies would all ship their cars to the United States to race for the Vanderbilt Cup against some of the uh, American makes and models, Alco and Winton and these other companies that, you know, don't no longer exist and haven't since like the Great Depression. But it was kind of the first idea that the American manufacturers would try to take on these established and, in many ways, more respected names. The European car manufacturers quickly rose to prominence because of the amount of racing they did in Europe. Racing was still a relatively um, relatively interesting concept here in the United States, and it was done on a small scale. In Europe, race car drivers and, and the speed freaks that, that existed there were like national heroes. So we go back to that 1900s era. We talk about the Vanderbilt Cup. You know, we talk about the effect that that had to kind of advance this idea of America versus the world. Then we go to the 1913 Indy 500. And the 1913 Indy 500 is important because it will be the first time that a foreign car and a foreign driver win this race. This traditionally American event is won by a guy named named Jules Go, G-O-U-X from France, and he's driving a Peugeot. And uh, Go's dad was actually the factory supervisor at Peugeot where they built these cars. And, you know, a guy named Bob Evans uh, went back and forth with him, leading a couple of laps, about a 10-lap stretch. But then his car failed, and 
basically uh, Go became the first non-American winner of the Indy 500, which was at that time and continues to be, of course, one of the largest uh, automotive you know events on earth um, for both spectator count and for the you know for the interest. I mean, even back in 1913, they claimed to have 90,000 spectators there, so that was a giant spectacle. Um, the neat thing about that race is go, you know, the, is, is said to have consumed like four or five bottles of champagne throughout the race. Like every time he came in for a pit stop, they, they give him a fresh bottle and he chugs some of it down or spit some of it out. Spencer Wishart was the American finishing closest there. He came in second and, uh, America, rather other European cars rounded out the top five in the, in the fourth and fifth positions. One other story from that 1913 Indy 500, I don't want to get sidetracked, but this is fantastic. So in order for the top 10 drivers to receive prize money back then, they had to complete the full 500 miles. So if you came, um, if you came in, you know, whatever, uh, eighth, and you didn't actually finish the full 500 miles, you didn't get paid. So after Go finishes the event and wins, there are other racers still trying to get their 500 miles done. The guy named Charles Mertz, who was trying to finish in second place, um, his car caught on fire on lap 199. And Mertz wanted to get paid, so he drove the last lap with his car completely engulfed in flames, and his riding mechanic, a guy named Harry Martin, uh, crawled on top of the hood of the car as it was running and was trying to beat the flames back with his shirt, and then he finally released the straps that held the hood down and, uh, and allowed the hood to fly off so he could get direct access and try to beat the flames off. Uh, for all this effort, they finished third. Now, they did uh, get paid, so the good news is that his, uh, rather, Harry Martin's work did not go unnoticed, but uh, certainly a risky maneuver there in that last lap of the race for both he and his driver driving the car completely in flames. So just to give you some context, you know, this America versus Europe thing had been stewing for the better part of a half a century. We did see and continued to see through this time period, European uh, manufacturers would on occasion come and race at the Indy 500. At the time, the Indy 500 was part of the Formula One points gathering process throughout the year. So it wasn't uncommon for Ferrari or Maserati or an exotic make to Americans anyway to show up and compete at the race to gain points in the manufacturer's championship for Formula One. It is not a common style of racing in Europe to race in ovals. It's a very American thing. Stock car racing um, and obviously races like the Indy 500, the fact that racing in this country developed instead of on public streets, developed on horse racing tracks is the reason for this, the reason why we race in circles so much in America. In Europe, so much of the racing was developed on public streets, uh, places like Le Mans, for example, the race that's been going on for over 100 years. It was about street-style racing, about road racing, as we have come to call it. In America, there was some of that, but the majority of racing competitions from the days of Barney Oldfield up happened on horse tracks. So it was the first fast person around in a circle. It's just kind of the way it went. So this is why races like the Indy 500 captured the American uh, psyche so much. So in the ensuing years between this, you know, 1913 uh, Peugeot uh, extravaganza win, if you will, at the Indy 500 leading us into the 50s, there is an ongoing back and forth kind of idea that the Americans uh, have a, a chip on their shoulder, maybe an inferiority, inferiority complex versus their European brethren when it comes to racing. We did have a couple of send-ups. We had uh, some some pretty spectacular moments. John Fitch, an American racer, became a you know a factory works driver for the likes of Mercedes in the 1950s. His name came up in our Roger Ward podcast here on the Dorkomotive 
podcast series. And then we also had uh, different winners. We had Duesenberg win Le Mans in 1922. That was a major league deal. Duesenberg, American car, American driver, go and win Le Mans. And then they get completely ignored at the winner's dinner. They basically get uh, kind of pushed off the stage. It was almost an embarrassment for the Europeans that that happened. And it's an amazing story, one that uh, maybe we should tell on this podcast. But Duesenberg in 22 strikes one back for the Americans winning Le Mans. Speaking of 1922, that's where the heart of the story begins. It is in 1922 when Monza, the famed circuit in Italy, is first built. It is built over the course of about a year. It is built by 3,500 workers, and it is built uh, to be one of the fastest road courses in the world. It was initially built as a 3.6-mile Grand Prix course, or Grand Prix course, depending on how French you want to get with your pronunciation there. It was, from the start of its life, very, very fast, and it was recognized as being pretty dangerous. So that was in 1922 it was built, and it was really the third racing facility ever constructed on Earth, the third dedicated racetrack. The first was Brooklyn's in Europe, or rather in England. The second was the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and the third dedicated 100% auto racing facility ever built that is permanent is Monza. And from 1922 to 1954, it exists in the same state. And then in 1954, an addition is made, and that addition is what will set up the eventual race of two worlds in 1957. The ideal racetrack that defined competition the beautiful two and six tenths miles speed oval at Monza in northern Italy was believed to be too fast for racing. The problem was rubber. Tires, they said, had failed in from four to six laps at sustained high average speeds over 150 miles per hour. High banked parabolic curves up to 80% were designed to safely hold a race car at 175. And now you know what that addition was, a 2.6 mile oval which was lovingly nicknamed Monzanapolis by many people of the era because it had the same layout as Indianapolis it was longer of course just by a skosh as Indianapolis is two and a half miles and Monza's 2.6 now the biggest difference between Monza and Indianapolis is banking and at Indianapolis the most banking there is in the corner is just over nine degrees and as you heard the announcer from this uh, old school Firestone tire video that we're going to be referencing many times in this story the banking at Monza in the corners was up to 80 degrees. It is effectively a wall when you get up to the top of the corners at Monza. And what that means is we all know in terms of racing is that with that steep banking, you can basically run this place flat out if you have the guts to do it. The downside of Monza is the fact that when it was built, it was built in this 1954 version in kind of a shoddy fashion. It was it was built quickly, and it was not built using the greatest of materials or material science or really finished engineering. So what you end up with is this 2.6-mile rocket ship-style course that is very rough, that is very uneven, and that is very bumpy. And as you heard... The announcer talked about the tires. This was a primary concern, not necessarily 
of the Americans, and we'll find out why in a minute, but of the European competitors, they were convinced that this race was going to be a very bad idea. And this was before anything even, even kind of anybody even showed up at the racetrack. And because of the fact that they had all these different concerns and because of the fact organizers wanted this event to come off well, they went to Firestone, they went to multiple tire companies, and it really was Firestone that stepped up to the plate and agreed that they were going to do some work here and try to put in the effort to make a tire that would be safe on this incredibly fast and incredibly rough course. So, as we reference back to our historic Firestone video here, let's hear what they have to say about developing a tire to live in the harshest conditions racing had ever known in 1957. An American company was invited to develop and prove a safe tire for the world's fastest racing oval. The Monza Challenge was accepted. Tire experts, test car, driver, and crew were sent to Italy. The race of two worlds had already been announced. Ten top American and ten of the best European drivers would enter the blue chip competition. And he's definitely not kidding when he talks about ten of the greatest American drivers entering into this competition. So the American lineup, Jimmy Bryan, USAC champion, Pat O'Connor, Andy Linden, Eddie Sachs, Troy Rutman, Johnny Parsons, Ray Crawford, Bob Veith, and Tony Bettenhausen. Those were the 10 Americans that were going to be representing our side of the fence here in the 57 race. And then when we go to the European side of things, well, it gets a little bit uh, different, shall we say, from there. Um, the reason being is because, well, we'll get to that in a second. The reason being is because most of the Europeans don't even end up competing at all. And again, it goes back to this fear of the tires. And we talk about this era of racing, as we so often do, as being incredibly dangerous, as being something of um, something of a very daredevil-style sport. And it doesn't matter what style of racing you're doing in the 50s. That's just how it goes. And when you're proposing to run an event with the fastest cars in the world on the fastest, roughest road course in the world, and guys know that you can barely get a tire to live through the Indianapolis 500 between pit stops, and there's no banking on the corners, you start doing the math. Now, again, the Americans weren't necessarily the ones that were overly concerned about this because they knew they had Firestone in their corner, and they knew those Firestone engineers had all this data from racing in Indianapolis. Firestone had signed on to this project uh, earlier on in its kind of um, incubation period. So Firestone had done their research about Monza, about the surface. They had spent some time there, gone back to their engineers, and basically tried to design an indestructible tire. All this is well and good, but until you actually prove that tire out, then you're not going to know if the cars can compete. It's a big gamble. It's a big risk. This whole thing, this 1957 race, was a very big gamble because there was no kind of set parameters on how this was going to work in terms of would the tire work. There is no ability to just kind of test it. You have to go there with your chips on the table and pray that your design works. So shortly after the 1957 Indy 500, these 10 racers hop on airplanes or hop on ships and head towards Italy. Their race cars are also loaded on ships, and they head towards Italy before anybody has turned a lap at this place. The engineers from Firestone send the tires. They head that way. And when the trucks, or rather when the cars get to Italy, they are unloaded off the ship, and Alfa Romeo provides trucks to get the cars from the port to the racetrack. So now we have the drivers there. We have the cars there. We have the tires there. Will it work? That is going to be question one. 
and the man who gets to answer whether it'll work or not is Pat O'Connor, who by perhaps drawing the short straw, or perhaps by being the bravest man in the history of the known universe at that point, decides to be the test driver for Firestone to see if these tires can hold up to the punishment of the uneven, very fast concrete surface at Monza, Italy. Hour after hour and day after day, the tests continued. The final proof was 77 laps at an average speed of over 165 miles per hour. And the tires? There was no indication of failure. It was international hero O'Connor with a new one-lap world record of 170 miles per hour safely tucked away. Pat had smashed the so-called tire barrier, and the Monza 500 was proved tire safe. All right, great news, right? Pat O'Connor tests the tire, lives to tell the tale. Everything seems good. They're not flying apart. Car is safe. Everything's going to be okay. Except it's not going to be okay, especially for the organizers of the race of two worlds. Because in order to have a race of two worlds, there needs to be two worlds represented. And as we're about to find out, the European drivers start to have some cold feet. Not just because of the surface, as we'll hear. But as events begin to develop, we'll understand why a lot of these European drivers and European teams decided that they really didn't want any part of participating in this event. And as I said, it doesn't just have to do with the tires, but boy, it sure does make for a nice excuse. The American cars and drivers arrived in Italy on schedule. Three days of practice and qualification and the big event. But something had happened to the proposed race of two worlds. The newly formed drivers union had announced that their members would not compete. Indicated speeds, it was said, were too fast, and the race mass suicide. Yikes, right? That's a that's a term. You want to really get a point across, call something mass suicide. So the European racers obviously are citing the tire that they don't want to be on or the tires that uh, they don't feel safe racing on. You have other teams outside of the Firestone teams. Now, Firestone wasn't just limiting their tires to only the American cars. They did make them available to everybody. And there are teams that decide to take them up on this offer. But a lot of teams are have contracts with other manufacturers, whether it's Dunlop or Avon or whoever at that time, that they don't want to break those contracts, especially in such a high-profile race as this. They're getting financial support. They're getting maybe engineering support. And if you were to deviate from that contract at an event called the Race of Two Worlds, it would not bode well for your continued sponsorship. It would not bode well for your continued relationship with a tire manufacturer. So this is not an uncommon thing in the history of racing. I mean, we can go to Talladega, the very first race we had there. In the NASCAR series, there was a boycott as the drivers said that the tires weren't safe. Remember, famously, Richard Petty kind of led all the racers out of the gate. Bill France ran the race anyway. Then there was the situation at the U.S. Grand Prix at Indianapolis, uh, what, not even 10 years ago, where basically all the cars on one brand of tire pulled off the track after the opening parade lap and left the U.S. Grand Prix Formula One race with like six cars in it or something ridiculous like that. So it isn't just this event where we see a, a, a protest over tires or over what the safety of tires are. The main difference here, though, is the fact that the European cars clearly were not up to snuff to hang with what was there for American machines. And the American machines that were there came straight from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They were roadsters built by A.J. Watson. They were roadsters um, built by the great roadster builders of all time. You know, Curtis, 
Uh, I mentioned Watson. They have Afi Engines, Kuzma. You know, these are the guys that um, built the premier roadsters of that era of the 1950s and 60s. And when we compare an Indy Roadster from this era to a European-built F1 car or sports car or even a special, as we'll see in the 1958 era, they are tanks. And they are relatively crude as compared to the European machines. And I'm not being disrespectful to those roadsters because they're incredible race cars. But they have solid front axles. They are just real heavy. They are big. And, of course, they run those Offenhauser engines, those screaming engines that we've heard in a couple of the audio clips so far in this vi- in this podcast. Not a video. It's a podcast. So there is a bit of not only the fear of the tire, but also going, oh, boy. Like, we we cannot really afford to look this bad in front of the world against these uh, tractors of race cars. It's one thing to get beat on their home turf in Indianapolis because the European manufacturers manufacturers can say, hey, uh, yeah, our cars aren't that great in an oval, but they will outbreak, they will outcorner these machines on a road course. Well, if you've invited these Americans onto your turf, and they're showing up and they're going to make you look bad, we now begin to understand some of the fright, if you will, some of the intimidation that's going on for the European teams. And not all of them decide to cave to the pressure. There is one pluggy team from Scotland that decides to stick in there, and their choice of vehicle is pretty interesting. There was rumor that a Scottish team would compete in three Jaguars. Italian driver Mario Bonigia is on hand with a Ferrari to give it a whirl. He handled well in the curves. Jean Vera, famous French driver, arrived with an especially built Maserati. Things were looking up. Things were looking up because it did seem like these independent teams were actually going to overcome the fears of the factory teams and maybe, just maybe, this protest that the factory teams were lodging would be upset by the independents coming up. Like we heard about Barra showing up and, and racing. We heard about the Italian racer. And then they mentioned the potential of the Scottish team showing up with three Jaguars. Well, that is the famed Ecurie Ecosse team from Scotland. And Ecurie Ecosse, uh, as transcribed from French, means Scottish stable or Scotland stable. And this was a team that was formed in 1951 by David Murray, who was a racer, and his chief mechanic, Wilkie Wilkinson, which is a name in unto itself. I think that is the most Scottish name of all time. Wilkie Wilkinson. Anyway... This team became famous uh, in the 1950s because they won the 1956 and 1957 uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans races. And they also competed in some Formula One style competition as well. But uh, they were also famous for their race transporter, which was an awesome truck, which we could get into for a whole different, uh, whole different kettle of fish. But their race transporter and their 1956 and 57 Le Mans wins were the most notable achievements for this Scottish team. They raced D-type Jaguars at Le Mans, the same cars that they brought to this event. And they were a curious choice because, again, everybody else had open-wheel stuff, and these were full-bodied sports cars. And we'll talk a little bit about why 
this is an interesting choice of vehicle once we get into the actual racing competition. But for the purposes of this discussion, the independent drivers seem to be shining a little ray of hope onto this event that it will in fact be an actual race of two worlds instead of just a race of Americans versus themselves. And then the Novi hit the track. American drivers watched and hoped. Qualifying speeds had pushed over the 173 mile per hour average when Tony Bettenhausen fired up the Novi. He stroked the powerful engine for a lap or two and then put his foot on it. He roared down the straightaway and ripped flat out into the high bank. One seventy-seven plus, a new world record for a closed oval race course. And now is when things really get good because we we got to talk a little bit about one uh, Tony Bettenhausen, just a absolutely awesome racer, and two the Novi. If you're unfamiliar with what the Novi Special was, what the Novi Special is, imagine a 1950s Curtis-style roadster like everything else, except instead of having a four-cylinder Offenhauser engine and rear-wheel drive, it has all-wheel drive, and it has a supercharged engine that is effectively two of those Offenhauser four-cylinders joined together into one. So it is immensely complicated. It is by far the most powerful thing, not only on the racetrack here in Italy, but also on the racetrack every year it ever competed at the Indy 500. Unfortunately, it is also the most complex vehicle on the racetrack everywhere it shows up the immense power combined with the all-wheel drive combined with the roughness of the racetrack doesn't necessarily give the novi the racing results it wanted as we'll find out in a little while but what it does do in qualifying as with tony bettenhausen qualifying on the pole with a 177 mile an hour speed what it does is it drives every single European team except for one running to the gate with their hands up, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to respond, and not wanting anything to do with racing at the race of two worlds. American officials were told by the track director that all foreign entries had withdrawn except the Scotch team of three Jaguars. So apparently the two worlds are going to be Scotland and the United States. That's how it shook out. And credit to the Scottish team for hanging in there. Their ability to hang in there, their want to hang in there, certainly spoke to their competitive spirit, but it also spoke to a very pragmatic approach because when we talk about this event that was going to be 500 miles in length, it is going to be broken into three sections of 63 laps apiece. They are battling or they are playing a game of attrition. And what they believe is, is their race cars that are designed to live for 24 hours and have successfully won Le Mans and the year that this event is held in 1957, they know their stuff will hold up. They know the stuff will live. They also know that they have absolutely 0% chance of hanging with these Indy cars at full throttle on this course. But if they can simply be out there and outlast them, they have a great chance at it. Indy cars are not designed to run for immense amounts of time at full throttle on very rough pavement. Now, neither is the road race car, but the road race car is far more capable of dealing with the rough pavement, far more capable of dealing with this uh, really undulating, uneven surface than these Indy cars would be, at least on paper. 
So the Akira Cost team, they certainly get my vote of respect for going, hey, listen, uh, yeah, we're going to go out there and hopefully we can just outlast these guys. They were gutsy enough to hang in there, gutsy enough to give it a shot. And frankly, when the race started, they were gutsy enough to grab the lead. Here they come through the north turn. And what's this? The Jaguar has pushed through the field and is leading the first lap. And again, credit to where it's due in this situation where the Jags, uh, because of their gearing, were able to have a nice uh, quick start and able to lead, at least for a lap, the IndyCars around the, the speed oval at Monza. The Jaguars would not be a factor in this race. They did stick around to the end. They did survive to the end. We're going to have a couple of updates as to far as how things go here. But it is Jimmy Bryan, who was the USAC champion um, that previous year, that jumps out and really starts to prove himself very quickly as the guy to beat in this event. So let's ride along a little bit with Jimmy Bryan. Bryan, driving a hard, steady race, is about to push into the lead. Bettenhausen is out permanently with broken shock absorber support rods. Brian continues his relentless drive and is out in front. O'Connor, early leader, has had to reduce speed with suspension problems caused by the constant pounding. The Jags have been left by the American cars, but all three are still in the race. Those pesky Jags, I told you, they were built to last, and we can hear beginning with the announcer telling us about how Rathman has dropped out of the race, how O'Connor has had to throttle back and slow down, and it gives you an indication of just how really nasty this place was to drive on. Uh, reading reports from the other um, angles of this event, especially from the angles of drivers, they talked about how their hands were just, just uh, most of these guys were bloody mess, even though they were wearing gloves and everything. The vibration, the undulation, the constant movement. It was a very grueling event. Even though it was broken into three sections, it was still uh, as violent, as tough, as hardcore as running a 500-mile race was at Indianapolis on a, on a surface that, um, as compared to Italy, the Indianapolis surface was as smooth as glass, and even that had, you know, its flaws in it. So the surface is beginning to take the toll on the race cars. Jimmy Bryan seems to be impervious to all of it, especially with his cars, and he continues to dominate the event. Bryan gets the checkered flag with O'Connor finishing second and Linden third. Vyth coasted to the finish line. Severe vibration had broken his steering gear. He was through for the day. The American National Point champion is a happy man. He's a happy man, but he's not a finished man. He's only one-third of the way through the race. Their teams were given uh, one and a half hours between the sessions of the event to work on their race cars. So you heard Bob Veith was out because the steering had vibrated itself apart. I mean, can you imagine? You're at the fastest race in the world. Unequivocally, this is the fastest race in the world. It's a sustained speeds here no one has ever done in the history of mankind, in an airplane, in anything. No one has spent the amount of time that these guys have spent at speed that they're doing right now. So... The fact that you're going flat out and the steering is vibrating itself to pieces underneath you or in front of you in one of these race cars speaks to the bravery level of a guy like Vife, of a guy like Brian, of a guy like Rutman, Bettenhausen, you name it. They're all some of the most brave people that I've ever heard of, especially in the face of what they've been dealing with. 
the other people that need to be very proud and who are likely chopping their fingernails to the, the, the quick at this point during this race are those Firestone engineers. They're watching these cars collapse around the tires. The tires are holding up. It is the cars themselves that are failing. And it's not a stretch to, to think that they are very nervous about what they're watching even after this first session. That being said, the Firestone video that we're listening to here via this podcast doesn't go over the top with the self-congratulatory stuff, but they do take their opportunities every once in a while to give themselves a good hearty pat on the back. And frankly, I can't blame them too much. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by NitroActive.net. NitroActive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. Ten cars remain in the field. The air temperature jumps to 104 and the track temperature to 128 degrees. The sensational speeds and rough track have taken their toll in mechanical failures, but not a single stop has been made for tires. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, they earned that plug right there, right? Not one single stop has been made for tires. Bettenhausen's car vibrated itself to pieces. Vice steering comes apart. We can go down the line of all the failures, but the tires were not one of them. And the Jaguars weren't having any problems with their tires either, likely because their sustained speeds were a lot lower. These road racing cars with a full body on them were heavier. They had the Jaguar-famed inline-six dual-overhead cam engines in them. They were great cars. They just were not built for the raw speed that this Monza Speed Ring, this Monza Speed Oval, uh, was available or, or making available to the IndyCar racers. And you got to think of what these tires are going through. Speeds that, again, sus- sustained speeds no one had ever seen before. Sustained G-loading that these cars and racers and tires had never sustained before because of those very steeply banked turns. And now sustained heat that their tires had never been through. How can we say that? Well, you just heard him say that the ambient temperature is like 100 degrees and the racetrack's 100-some degrees. So you add in these things, and now it's like an element of another element of danger with the temperature because why do tires often fail? Well, they often fail because of heat. So we take heat, we take that pressure being placed on them in these banked corners, and then we take the heat that's generated by running at full steam ahead for as hard and fast as it'll go for 63 laps at a whack. Um, That's dangerous stuff. And as we find out quick... Jimmy Bryant, he ain't scared. All eyes are on Bryant and the big number one. He means to make it two in a row. Speeds are faster. They've got to be to lead in this contest. Bryant is clocked in one lap at a sizzling 175 miles per hour average speed in traffic. So to give you some perspective on that 175 mile an hour speed in traffic, The 1957 Indy 500, the average speed was 135 miles an hour. The pole speed at that race was 143. So pole speed, of course, qualifying at the Indy 500 is a one car at a time deal. You get the track to yourself and you try to rip off the fastest speed. So when we're talking 175 in traffic, it's astonishing. Now traffic, of course, we're down to 10 cars on a two and a half mile long track. So let's not overstate what traffic is, maybe having to pass somebody in a lump once or twice, maybe having to weave your way around, maybe 
two of those sports cars every once in a while so traffic is kind of a misnomer when it comes to this race because the cars being so spread out being so few and being on such a large track you're not doing a lot of lifting to weave around them this all being said it is a good illustration of just how much faster this event is than the Indy 500 which at the time um, stood as one of the fastest races in the world so 175 with traffic is craziness, and Jimmy Bryan, once again, is unfazed by any of it. The guy is looking like King Kong on this day at Monza. Bryan has lapped the entire field with a checkered flag only a few miles ahead. And he charges across the finish line. And charging across that finish line now means that Jimmy Bryan has won two out of these three 63-lap stages and basically has the thing in his back pocket. So he he goes into the old-school don't-screw-it-up type of racer mentality, which is not the worst way to look at it, especially because this was going to be a very, very large payday. So how did stage two, if you will, shake out? A nice little recap here by our professional announcer from 1957. Only eight cars have lasted through two sections of the race. Brian, Rutman, and Parsons are ready for the final assault. O'Connor has made emergency repairs on his gas tank, and Crawford is limping. The three Jaguars, though several laps behind, complete the field. So now we're down to eight. <laughs> eight cars on a 2.6-mile oval. Uh, two of those cars, as mentioned, or three of those cars, the Jags, all three are still in. So you get five Indy cars left. You got three Jags that are now multiple laps behind. But it doesn't mean they're out because, as we mentioned earlier, when they were starting this event, the Jags were playing that uh, attrition game. They were just going to try to outlast the Indy cars. And frankly, on a percentage basis, they have not lost a single car, and the Indy car guys have lost half. So with 63 laps to go, the Jag guys are probably going, hey, uh, this actually isn't going uh, as bad or isn't going that far off our plan. If a couple of those guys drop, maybe one of these racers can get a top three finish and the team can get paid. Certainly, they're going to get a lot of international acclaim because coming off of their Le Mans victory in 1957 and now being able to hang uh, really, if not on the bumpers of, at least in the same breath as these IndyCars here at Monza, this is uh, a great Ploy, a great coup, if you will, for Jaguar, as they're the only actual manufacturer in this event, and they're going to garner all the publicity from it. Now, they don't win the race, of course. That goes to our man, Jimmy Bryan, but he doesn't necessarily win it in the way you would have thought. He played it safe, and here is how Jimmy Bryan won the race. Redmond leads Bryan by half a lap, and Parsons is a good third. Bryan, driving a smart race, has only to stay in the same lap with Redmond to place first overall. He keeps the position with ease, and he crosses the finish line with both hands in the air and a cigar clenched between his teeth. The winner won a new world record. Although the rugged race had eliminated half of the starting field with mechanical and other breakdowns, there was not a single accident nor tire failure. Brian's time for the 500 miles is 3 hours, 7 minutes, 5 and 9 tenths seconds, and his average speed, 160.057 miles per hour. Brian had accepted the Monza Challenge and had won. He had won, and by winning, he collected a very significant cash prize of over $35,000. And there, there are different amounts reported in different places, but as I have read on this race, I keep coming back to this $35,000 number. And when we talk about $35,000 in 1957 money, that is $321,000 in today's money. 
the Indianapolis 500 paid $100,000, actually $103,000 in 1957. It was the first ever uh, race to ever pay over $100,000 for a single event. And so the thirty-five grand here, uh, well, one-third of that prize is still a huge amount of money. And in perspective, we can say that uh, a home, an average home in America in 1957, cost $18,000. So right off the bat, you could buy two houses straight up cash in your back pocket. And the most significant way to describe what thirty-five grand meant in 1957 is that the average American made $3,641 per year. So in one day, you earn 10 times what the average salary of a working person in America was in 1957. Amazing stuff. I want to give a quick postscript on this race, and especially the competitors that were in it, before we move on to the 1958 race. And the 1958 race is interesting, uh, but not as interesting as 57. So... When we talk about racing at this period, and, and maybe I belabor this point a little bit too much about how dangerous it was, but I don't feel like I do, and I would like to use the, the driver lineup from this 57 event to explain to you in very vivid terms how dangerous it was at that point, how dangerous, how daredevil-like it was to put your life in your hands and go out there and race a car, and even doubly so perhaps at this event when you're doing things that no one had ever done in racing before running the fastest speeds in history running them for a sustained amount of time running them around an 80 degree banked corner so 1957 class i mentioned 10 drivers competing from america we're going to start and run through what their fates would become after this event Later in 1957 american racer andy linden was struck in the head by debris was permanently and catastrophically mentally disabled for the rest of his life would never race again at the 1958 indy 500 pat o'connor would be killed at the 1960 usac race at langhorn speedway in pennsylvania jimmy bryant would be killed at the 1961 indy 500 tony bettenhausen would be killed at the 1964 indy 500 eddie Sachs would be killed more than half of these guys died in violent ways or were permanently disabled in violent ways on the racetrack. Thankfully, Troy Rutman lived until 1997, lived a very full life. Johnny Parsons, still alive today. The guy's in his mid to late 70s. He is uh, one of those men of indestructible constitution from this time in history. Bob Veith lived until 2006. And Ray Crawford died in 1996, again, after having led a full life. And a neat background piece on Crawford, got into racing later in his life. He was a World War II fighter pilot. He was an ace, actually. And an ace meaning that he had uh, six confirmed kills, six confirmed shootdowns, and possibly a seventh during his fighter pilot career. And the great side note on Ray Crawford is that he was the first person to ever bring Mickey Thompson to the Indianapolis 500. Mickey Thompson, as a very young man, worked as a crewman for Ray Crawford, who was from California. His family owned a chain of grocery stores in the California area, and he raced on his own dime for basically his whole career, aside from special events like this one. So that is the postscript on the 1957 class of the Race of Two Worlds, and again, shining the light on the fact that racing in the 1950s was a lot different than it is in the year 2020 when I make this show. So there is going to be a 1958 race of two worlds. There is excitement. There is anticipation. There is a thought that these Europeans are finally going to get back at the Americans. And there is also some leverage applied to make sure that the Europeans don't back out this time. 
Ah, yes, leverage, that thing that we love. And in racing, leverage is applied by one of one ways, and that is with money. <laughs> so for the 1958 running of the race, uh, the Automobile Club of Italy and USAC got together. Didn't really change anything as far as the rules went. Kind of kept everything the same as far as that goes. A, a Formula Libre-style contest, if you will. Kind of wide open in many ways, shapes, or forms. Um, show up with whatever you want as long as it has been raced and approved by both of these organizations it can be entered into the race so what the USAC and Automobile Club of Italy did to apply leverage on these teams was like for Ferrari for instance the Automobile Club of Italy announced that the race of two worlds was a required event for teams that wanted to earn money from the Automobile Club of Italy and that you'd earn that by being the most successful Italian constructor in any given year of racing so if you were going to be eligible to do that, if you're a Ferrari, if you're a Maserati, if you're anybody of note in the Italian car building business, um, then you certainly had to get your act together and show up at this race or you'd be disqualified from being paid by the Automobile Club of Italy. That was big money. The teams are paying big money. They want to make some of that back. So let's talk about the racers that showed up. Who are the new faces that we see? Well, there are familiar faces. Jimmy Bryan's back, the man who won the race in 1957. American sports car racer Mastin Gregory shows up. He's going to be driving for the Acuria Cost team again in one of their Jaguars. Jim Rathman is back in a Watson Roadster this time. We have Roger Ward, the famed Indy 500 champion. Bob Veith is back. Sterling Moss, the great the uh, English racer is driving a Maserati that we'll talk about here in a couple of minutes. Luigi Musso is driving for Ferrari as well as Phil Hill, the great American racer that would become the first American Formula One champion in the early 60s. Mike Hawthorne is racing for Ferrari as well. Hawthorne, one of the guys involved in that tragic 1955 event at Le Mans that ended up killing dozens and dozens of spectators. And we go down the list of guys like Juan Fangio. How about that? Juan Miguel, well, Juan Manuel Fangio is in this race. And he is not driving a sports car. He is driving a Kuzma Offenhauser Indy Roadster. How great is that? Eddie Sachs is back. Ray Crawford's back. A.J. Foyt and Troy Rutman, among the other notable Americans. So they have cranked up the star power at this event. You add Fangio to a race. You have Hawthorne. You have Hill. You have Sterling Moss. Uh, Roger Ward, this is legitimately a who's who of European and American racers. And the practice sessions begin to show us a little bit of a different face of this event, specifically because of the Ferrari entrance. When Ferrari was kind of forced to show up, Enzo, maybe against his, maybe against his will to some degree, but certainly not against his wallet, developed a special car for this event. They took an old Ferrari 375 F1 chassis, and put a 245 cubic inch V12 in it, and they renamed the car the 412MI, and uh, M from Monza, and 412 meaning a uh, 4-liter 12-cylinder engine. That's how Ferrari kind of have, has always named their stuff. So that V12, uh, like a 400-horsepower engine, so they weren't messing around. That V12 was a very serious car. They also um, brought a modified Ferrari 246 uh, car that had a a V6 engine in it that was only about 200 cubic inches. Um, uh, that didn't the car didn't do anything. It didn't have enough motor in it to be competitive, and it was not uh, a factor at all in the event. I don't even know if it started the race to be honest. But 
the 412 MI, despite the fact it was kind of ugly and despite the fact that it was not good for anything but this particular event, was fast. And the driver in it, Luigi Musso, was fast as well. In fact, Musso, during qualifying, actually snagged the pole position for a portion of the qualifying um, the qualifying sessions of the race, which was a big deal because all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this actually is going to be a race of two worlds. The Ferrari is fast enough to hang with these Indy cars. And then it got blown out of the water. He was the fastest European entry, 55.3 second lap. But then as qualifying continues, you got Bob Veith goes out and runs a 54 second lap. And then it keeps getting kicked down quicker than that. So by the time that we actually got to the qualifying order, uh, Musso did get knocked back a couple of spots. I mentioned the fact that Sterling Moss was competing. And Moss was there also in a specialty built vehicle. So the Maserati car um, was fully custom and they actually used the USAC kind of style chassis to build this thing off of. They called it the 420M. And again, M standing for Monza. It was an alcohol fed V8 uh, off center place, just like we find in these ovals track cars. And they learned a lot from the 1957 race. They also decided to use the Firestone tires and a two-speed transmission. The interesting thing here is when we think of Maseratis, we don't think of them being painted white. Well, an Italian ice cream company called El Dorado, or the El Dorado Ice Cream Company of Italy, sponsored this event. And their company logo and colors were used on the race car. So it was bright white, and it had the El Dorado ice cream man painted on it as well. Uh, This event for Sterling Moss did not go as well as many racing events went for Sterling Moss. And while videotape and audio are in short supply from this race, there is a little bit of it, and it's not Sterling Moss's greatest day. A specially built Maserati is the choice of Sterling Moss for the 500-mile event at Monza, the fastest motor racing track in the world. And this event is particularly interesting because it brings the top European drivers up against the Americans, a rare combination. Buebs Jaguar leads Hawthorne and Moss round a curve, and there's Jim Rathman in his Zinc Special, and another American, Bob Veith. And that dent in the barrier means Sterling Moss is out of the race, steering failure at 150 miles an hour. A lucky escape, leaving Jim Rathman and Jimmy Bryan to take first and second places for America. So yeah, not Sterling Moss's finest day at the racetrack. And frankly, it was not the event that the race organizers were looking for. The good thing is that all the teams that showed up did go into competition. That meant that there were Maseratis and Ferraris and Jaguars and even a Lister Jaguar. Think of a very custom-built Jag that looked like an Indy car but had a Jaguar D-type six-cylinder engine in it. That car didn't do that great as well. So during the first 63-lap heat, this race was set up just like the other race was the year before. Um, we have the Jags once again jump out into a very early lead on the first lap and then they get blown into the weeds. So Musso in the Ferrari was a factor here early on. 
And over the, the first kind of opening stages of the race, Eddie Sachs and Luigi Musso were really sending this lead back and forth, and the crowd was going ballistic. There were uh, tens of thousands of people on hand, and as we all know, the Italian racing fans are very, very prideful of their own brands, especially Ferrari. So with Ferrari competing and competing at a high level, the place was apparently electrified. Every time Musso would come around, he would be greeted as a hero. The place would go berserk. Fangio did not have any luck at all as as the race was beginning the they discovered a, a cracked piston in the Offenhauser engine for Fangio's car so he is not a factor at all he basically doesn't even start the thing Jimmy Bryan is back he is running in second Jim Rathman has worked his way up very close to the front as well during this first session and then we get about 30 laps in and Luigi Musso unfortunately is overcome by methanol fumes he apparently had some sort of aversion and I know guys who have this that they that they have shortness of breath when they're around methanol so unfortunately for him he had to pull in and lap 27 hands the car off to Mike Hawthorne and then that put them back to a sixth place finish in the first of the three sessions Jimmy Bryan finished second Jim Rathman finished first the only two cars on the lead lap were Rathman and Bryan. The third place finisher of the first session was Bob Veith. And at this point in the race, Sterling Moss was still looking pretty good. He had finished fourth. He was only one lap behind. And the number five spot was another Offenhauser Roadster of Johnny Thompson. And in the sixth spot was the Musso Hawthorne Ferrari. And then a long list of off powered Roadsters till we get down to number 11, which was a Jag. Eddie Sachs, Don Freeland, Roger Ward, and Phil Hill were all out in the first section of the race why Sachs's car broke an engine Don Freeland's car broke an engine Roger Ward's car broke one of the torsion bars a part of the suspension and a broken magneto sideline Phil Hill in the second session pretty much the same story as the first Jim Rathman and Bob Veith go one and two Jimmy Bryan's three Troy Rutman's four Sterling Moss again still in the race finishes fifth he is another lap behind AJ Foyt six and Jimmy Reese seventh it is the robust nature of the construction of these cars that is coming through again. Guys that competed last year knew how to beef things up. We do have some breakage, of course, as Johnny Thompson breaks a crankshaft. He's out. Ward and Harry Chanel, they are also retired. They don't finish that session. But once again, it is three Offenhauser-powered, American-built roadsters that are about as complicated as a farm tractor beating up on these world-beating live sports cars that are engineered towards the end of the ends of the earth at this point in history aj foyt would drive the third session as well finishing in the number six spot breaking a crankshaft near the end of the race in the third the third session jim rathman wins again jim rathman ran every lap led almost every lap he led every lap but basically 10 of this event there were 11 cars that made it to the final heat and Fangio, believe it or not, actually came back out. They had enough time to repair a slide a piston in that thing. Fangio did come out to compete, but it broke a fuel pump two laps in. What a forgettable weekend for Juan Manuel Fangio, one of the greatest race car drivers of all time. Unfortunately, just was not a factor here in Monza at Italy. Jim Rathlin wins, uh, winning all three heats. Um, Jimmy Bryan had finished only a minute and a half behind Rathlin, so he almost pulled it off two years in a row. Rathman had an average speed of 166.7 miles an hour over the course of the 500 miles, and the crowd had grown from 1957 to 58. But that would be it for the race of two worlds. There was no 1959 running of the event. 
Why? Well, if you read the racing magazines and newspapers of the day, it says that, well, USAC and the Italian uh, Automobile Association just couldn't get the rules packaged the way they wanted it. And there are different varying opinions on this. Some people wanted the Indy cars to run smaller engines. Some people wanted the Indy cars to make some significant changes. And frankly, it just wasn't worth it for anybody to modify their package that much to go compete. They thought that the thing had kind of run its course spectator-wise. Nobody really made a bunch of money. And as we mentioned, in 1957, the, the Monza Speed Oval was already in bad shape and it hadn't gotten any better. Up until 1961, Formula One ran on the Monza Speed Oval. And then up until 1969, there was amateur racing on that part of the racetrack. But after 1969, it was never used again for any sort of competition. There are pieces of it that still exist. You can go to Monza. You can see the crumbling remains of these high-banked 80-degree corners. But race cars have not traversed them now in over a half a century. 1953... Or 1955, 56, 60, and 61, Formula One used the 6.2-mile layout of Monza, which included the, the oval. And again, after 61, they stopped using that. Phil Hill, interestingly enough, won two of those events. 55, 56, 60, and 61, Phil was a two-time winner at Monza during the era that they ran the full 6.2-mile course with the high banks. It should be noted that Monza as so many places, was very dangerous and has been over the course of its life with 23 racer deaths and 41 spectator deaths since 1922. Thankfully, many of those happened in the distant past. There have been 10 different configurations run at Monza for Grand Prix races since it opened in 1922. The story of the Race of Two Worlds is one of a very audacious, very short-lived attempt to unite the fan base of racing around their own nationalism, around their pride of their different racers and series, and around the idea of running the fastest race in the world. As it turns out, 1957 and 1958, it was the American Curtis and Kuzma Afi-powered roadsters, the nose built by A.J. Watson, that dominated everything else in the world in this form of racing. As we all know, the configuration of race cars would begin to change in the early 1960s, and by the mid to late 60s, the Roadster was all but gone, a dinosaur of the era of racing where front engines, big horsepower, and big guts certainly dominated the scene. That's the story of the race of two worlds held only two years in the late 1950s. You may have never knew it existed. Now you do, and now you know why it'll never exist again. I'm Brian Loans, and I thank you for listening. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by Nitroactive.net. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, 
Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. 